Welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. It's been a good minute since I've done a podcast. Been extremely busy here in upstate New York doing 10,000 different projects and have kind of put this one on the back burner, but uh, lo and behold, not forgotten. And I decided this would be a good moment to release a new podcast because about a week and a half ago, I just got back from spending, uh, I think, a total of three days, four nights, something like that, uh, sitting in meditation in the forest and in silence without food, very little water, and kind of in a meditation about the upcoming upcoming initiation pilgrimage journey experience joy of becoming a father and uh some aspects of just the initiations of life as this is obviously a fairly significant one for myself personally and so i wanted to talk a little bit about my experience up there and um so you know traditionally like the whole premise around a fishing quest is that you go off into the you break away from the herd from the community in order to come into a place of silence within yourself where you can actually begin to hear your own inner calling and your own inner voice and not allow it to be drowned out by the opinions perspectives projections belief systems and drama of other people and this is an extremely important practice to do in a community setting in particular because when you're absorbed fully enmeshed in the web of community of communal relationships of relationships whether it's community at work school literally living in a communal type situation whatever your community might be it's important that you're able to step back from it and gain perspective about what's happening in it your role within the whole and how you relate to that whole and also how you're relating to yourself you know what work within yourself needs to be balanced and placed into a more refined perspective and also what is it that you need to bring forth to that community too because that's also a large part of going on these type of solitary meditations is trying to understand what it is that you have to offer to the world beyond just chop wood carry water and so on and so forth which are obviously well not perhaps not obviously but traditionally speaking liberating acts on the journey to realization according to traditions service work karma yoga so on and so forth as bringing you into a place of cohesive connectedness participate participation and generosity and sharing and interconnectedness with others you know bringing about that light within you uh but at the same time there's also something in a more like western tradition around the individual journey and the individual uh, myth and the power that the individual holds for what they can bring forth to the world that is unique coming out of them and something that can't be found in a group setting and I personally, from having lived in group setting and also lived in America, have found that uh, there's something really powerful when both of these forces synergize where we're able to bring 
out our own inner gifts, but in the context of a communal setting. And uh, for people who have not lived in a communal setting before, but maybe you've been to like Burning Man or something like that, that might be a good reference point where you're able to uh, really focus on what makes you unique to you and to the world, but then bring that forth in a very like sharing, generous, uh, abundant way towards a larger community, bit founded and rooted in collectivism and gifting and service and so on and so forth. So, uh, and always it's recommended to take periods of solitude like this, well, every day. <laughs> It's important to have at least a moment in the day where you forget what time it is, what's happening in the news, what's happening in the social bubble that you live, what's happening within your neuroses, what's happening in the obligations and responsibilities of mundane reality. That needs to be foregone and let go of at least temporarily once a day not just for our sanity, but also in order to connect to this place of intuition, creativity, spontaneity, and deep listening to what it is that wants to arise from within us and out of us. And not for our own selfish pursuit, but for the benefit of others, ourselves included. And so recommended to find a quiet space to vision quest every day, one could say. The uh, alternative perspective uh, not the alternative perspective the other way to approach it is also taking the solstices and equinoxes because those are energetically speaking very powerful moments shifts in the planetary sphere and cleaning during that time and that can look like a number of different things just based on where you're at individually it could look like uh, doing a prolonged water fast for a couple days it's recommended to do a 24-hour water fast every week. Once you get more established with that, doing a 24 to 36-hour water fast and get comfortable with that, then you can start doing 24-hour dry fast. They find that the process of autophagy, which uh, led to the one of the winners in the Nobel Prize in 2011, I think it was, although this is information that was known by ancient people forever. Self-eating is the name for autophagy as it cleans and recycles all the old and damaged cells in the brain, in the body, all the way down to the level of the mitochondria in the deep layers of the cell. And a deep cleaning occurs. And what takes three days in terms of autophagy through water fasting can be done in 24 hours in dry fasting. But as always, going mindfully, moderately, and slowly and building up to things and not overdoing it. And, you know, doing a fast or a cleanse like this for uh, during the equinoxes and solstices four times a year for a longer period of time. And taking space to create that context bubble for deep, deep listening to occur. Like, what is happening in life? You know, what have I been doing this whole time? Because how easy it is, especially, God bless me, in mainstream consumer culture to just get caught up in making money and chasing after stability and security and desires. And how important it is to purge ourselves of all that bullshit and for us to sit there and become confronted very deeply with our discomfort, our pain, our 
delusional sense of separation from others and from the world and from our actual creative gifts. And to sit and meditate and listen both to ourselves, our mind, our psychological makeup, our mental emotional field, and our own intuition and get a sense of what it is that we're here for. Like, why has it been that you've gone through all these things, all these trials and tribulations for what? What is it that this is coming to? Because obviously it's not for money or security because the bank system, banking system could collapse instantly and you could lose all your money immediately. You could die tomorrow. You could die within the time this podcast, before this podcast ends. And what really matters in life? Well, that's the question, right? So that's a bigger picture question because it's so easy to get caught up in these seemingly important but totally, uh, what would be the word, frivolous details of life, which are important because, you know, these significant larger picture things are composed of frivolous details. But there's a moment where our neuroses over these simple tiny things become so overwhelming that we just need to stop. You need to stop and step back and look at why are you here? Who are you? What is it that you're doing? What is the, one could say, the mission that you were sent here to do? And, you know, I like one thing Joseph Campbell says, where it's like, there's no meaning to life. You bring the meaning to it. Purpose of life is not to find the meaning of it. The purpose of life is to bring as much joy and life and, you know, energy to it as possible. And what that's going to look like for each person is different. So we have to find a way to connect to that space where that voice can come through. And it's very difficult when you are enmeshed in so many different relationships. And as I was about to step into perhaps one of the most uh, overwhelming type of relationships that one could find themselves in, that being a father to a son... I felt this would be a, a prime opportunity to do so, and I chose to do it on the equinox as there is a tremendous balancing of the forces of dark and light and an equilibrium of light and day. 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, and there's something really powerful that transitions as we move out of summer and into fall during that time, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere. And my meditation was deeply influenced by a book that I have been reading rather listening to on audible I highly recommend it it's called um, the heart of compassion by Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche and this book radically shook me in a lot of ways I seem to be radically shaken by Tibetan Buddhism a lot this year more so than I have in the past and uh, I lived with the Tibetan family and was exposed to a lot of Tibetan Buddhism like through Bhutan, through Nepal, uh, and a few places within India, such as Ladakh, which is known as Little Tibet, which is up on the Tibetan plateau. And is known that is called Little Tibet because its Tibetan culture is so... Um, well preserved there because it's such an isolated place and it wasn't destroyed by the Chinese as it was protected by India it's within India's borders and in all transparency when I was there I was not immediately connected to Tibetan Buddhism it felt like there was too much ritual too much 
esoteric hoopla <laughs> surrounding it. And I prefer to go to the stripped down teachings uh, presented by SN Goenka and Vipassana because of the utter simplicity and power and immediate effectiveness of what they had to offer. But the more and more that I've practiced and I've gone down many different routes doing things like fishing quests and traveling all over the world and meeting a lot of different teachers from many different traditions. And I have been, this year in particular, just impacted very deeply by the power of what Tibetan Buddhism has to share and its message. And the message that's centrally rooted in compassion. And this is a book, obviously, Heart of Compassion. I think it's called the 37 Verses. 37 Verses. I can't read it because it's very small. Here, hold on a second. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Well, it's called The Heart of Compassion. I don't want to pull it up right now. But uh, the premise of it is, is what does it mean to be a bodhisattva, to cultivate bodhicitta, which is you know a wise, compassionate heart, and someone that's there to become a liberator for all beings the 37 verses on the practice of a bodhisattva there we go and so dilgo kinsei rinpoche extraordinarily special person when you if you were just to take the, the things that were said in this book on an isolated vacuum the power of what the person you would have to go whoa like whoever could write this where not because it's it's radical it's radical in the context of like if you're an american but if you're in a renunciate seeking liberation for the benefit of all beings it's very clear-cut it doesn't provide much room for um people who are half sincere on the path it's for people who are saying i am moving in this direction this is the way to go and there is no other way to go not within the context of that religion, but in the context of the heart, meaning this is the way to cultivate a wise heart, is having compassion for all beings at all moments and to renounce all attachment. And the process of, for instance, I believe uh, from what I remember, there was lice in his hair or there was lice in another bodhisattva's hair. I don't recall which one. And rather than kill them and wash them out, he lets them stay there and then they die. And then he prays over them for 17 days. I mean, that's totally unnecessary, in my opinion. But at least it gives you a sense of like the, the level of how this person is not approaching life as a series of physical mundane objects. This person is approaching every single thing that comes into their field as a teacher and a doorway into a deeper felt connection with all of life and harmony and compassion and why compassion compassion to suffer with is the translation for it and they say you know this this dual side of, of wisdom and compassion so you have detachment and conscious engagement with the suffering of the world and trying to alleviate that suffering and the recognition that it's only through our connection rather our practice of that desire to alleviate suffering and that felt pain of others and to act and acting upon it it's through that that we come into the revelation of unity and wholeness and the eternity beneath all forms the unified field and it's 
through a felt expression of the heart. It's not something that, you know, you can listen to on a podcast and grasp, but maybe it can at least point you in some sort of a direction. Who knows? And the emphasis on, you know, like everything is going to pass away. Renounce the world, your wife, your husband, your children, your job, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much merit, you can become a god in the most heavenly of realms, the most ecstatic bliss and rapturous ecstasy. It doesn't matter what, that will pass. It will move eventually. And not only will it pass, but you become so enraptured there for so long that you actually forget the path and you become a hindrance. So renounce the attachment to bliss and to joy and beauty and all those things. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy them. It doesn't mean you don't participate in them and experience them when they arise, but it means to not find yourself totally enraptured by them to the point where you're losing your sense of uh, uh, detachment from the situation and to move and act in a purely selfless way for the benefit of all beings saying something like if somebody wants to hurt or harm you just let them i might be misquoting that but they're in it's within that realm and this level of like sacrifice and self-renunciation yet simultaneous participation. It's extremely powerful. And then, you know, you can listen to it and say, okay, well, who was this guy? Who is Dugo Kinsei Rinpoche? Dugo Kinsei Rinpoche was the current Dalai Lama's, one of the current Dalai Lama's teachers, you know, living in Tibet during the period of, of genocide and destruction. And you have to think about the power of who the Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama is, and just think about, like, this is one of his teachers, Right, this is somebody that has <laughs> proven through the power of, of the tradition, their students, of what can happen when you really let go and step into a way of putting values above desires and fears, and that's what you move towards. Like, what a powerful conviction and walk that is, it can't be overstated. And so as I was up on the mountain, this was a large focus on my quest. Uh, attempting to look at all the things that I have mismanaged or potentially harmed and things that have come my way, whether people, circumstances, or situations that have harmed me or I've been a byproduct of something being mismanaged, being part of some sort of an educational system, you could say would be an example of that. <laughs> the public education system that was a mismanagement of myself on their part on their behalf <laughs> and uh having a lot of compassion towards that because when you sit there and when you sit without food or water minimal sleep in silence in a very small tight space where you're you're you know i had a space about let's say 15 by 10 15 by 20 something like that little um circle i had created for myself and you stay there when you're there inevitably constraint creates or reveals to you how much pain you're in which is like a necessary component of the path is like that aspect of like confronting the pain of being human and when you're in that space it's very easy to become quote-unquote a victim of things like oh i'm like this because 
my father. I'm like this because my mother. I'm like this because my uncle. I'm like this because of TV or the public education system or society or that person or the job or my health issues or so on and so forth. There's always something that allows us easily to complain and take the perspective of victimhood and allow that to be our story for why we are the way we are and you know why we struggle with what it is that we struggle with and it always happening to us and i don't know who said it. it's one of those corny kind of new age things but like life's not happening to you it's happening for you for what for what benefit for you to awaken past these illusions of you know belief systems and societal pressures but also like self victimhood and shame and putting oneself down and to really look very deeply at the inner darkness of the mind and the way that we contort and distort our perspective of ourselves and our life path and others and create these stories around who everyone is and who we are and what's happening as if we know which is a profound level of arrogance we have any idea what the hell is going on and then finding ourselves this is why i suffer you know and that's one perspective but the when you approach things from this place of of compassion and detachment then we can look at all these negative burdens and all this pain as opportunity for transformation and to move into a more liberated state for ourselves and for others for the benefit of everyone and that ultimately the worst things that ever happen to you in life if you're able to shift your perspective and your discipline and your behavior and your character might fundamentally become the best things that ever happen to you and in many cases i found this for myself to be the, the situation but it requires us sitting there in a place where we can really process this stuff very deeply because we're constantly distracting ourselves by everything and constantly seeking out comfort and stimulation and anything that allows us to ignore whatever pain it is that is inside of us. And simultaneously, too, the thing that comes with pain, I think, is tremendous reward, right? And that's why they say, like, suffer ahead of time. That's what these practices are about. We're consciously going into the most difficult thing that we can think of, the most stressful environment. No food, no water, no talking, minimal shelter from the elements, little sleep can't really walk around or go anywhere you're just going to feel everything it doesn't really sound ideal for a lot of people if you consider how mainstream and modern culture chooses to uh, function and what it celebrates so but by going into this place when you step out you realize the thing that all these behavioral patterns, self-destructive tendencies, victims, hood, perspective I take on myself and so on and so forth, you know, that might be extreme. Maybe you're not at that level, but on some level of the spectrum, all of us are kind of there in one degree or another. Whether we shoot heroin or eat some too much chocolate cake, it happens to all of us. Not necessarily heroin. Don't misunderstand me here. <laughs> so we... Uh, we do find ourselves, at once we return from these sort of deeper immersion retreats and meditation periods, recognizing that I was just in this place that I've been 
I, everything in my life almost is, is I'm trying to avoid this spot. Right? Where I'm caught in a pinch and I can't get out. Right in the crux. And it's like, I cannot get out. I mean, who wants to just sit there in pain? So the wisdom of doing what you don't want to do in order to bring something forth very powerful within you. And it was an interesting time for me personally, too. As I was saying, this is not just meditation on fatherhood, but just these initiatory stages in life. And there's a song that I've been learning, Mashika song, where they talk about everything just fades into dust and it all just goes away. Which has a kind of grim, <laughs> but also like a, I, I like it. it, has a kind of like a hardcore, like, yeah, it's like whatever pain, whatever misery you have endured, it's going to fade. It's going to just pass away. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, freedom is what matters. And that's why you're here, because you're seeking freedom. And to hold that as a meditation, you know, in conjunction with compassion, right? Because it's not about becoming heartless, becoming oh, I'm, like I'm not human, I'm just going to go become like a guy who lives in a cave because everything turns to dust. But realizing that, yeah, everything does fade and pass away and just let go of it. And like and like the song, it's a very fierce song, right? It has this very strong energy to it. And the... Uh, I was meditating as I was I was learning the song and, and every now and then singing it to myself. It brought a lot of solace in the pain of just seeing like, yeah, okay, there is a letting go of no matter how bad something hurts, it's like there's no you don't even need to fix it. There's nothing to fix, right? Because that's a tendency that most of us have. We want to get a fix, whether the fix is like we were talking about heroin or it's cookie dough or something, whatever it is. And realizing like even if you fix it it doesn't matter because it's gonna it's it changes the change is occurring we don't need to fix anything but i was reflecting because my grandmother passed away in may and very unexpectedly she was extraordinarily healthy and really vibrant and really youthful and i traveled all over the world and been riding on the rooftop of buses in nepal and been to egypt and machu picchu and many other places and um it was really interesting too. One thing I was reflecting on was how the day that she died, she I re- I received a message from her before I knew she died on Facebook where she sent a message saying, "Hey, have you heard the big news?" I was like, "No, what's the big news?" I didn't hear anything back. And then my mom called me crying say telling me that she had died, and I went, "How what? She just a couple hours ago. I just got a message from her." My mom was like, what? How, what did the? When was the message? And I looked, and it was a. There's actually two Facebook profiles for my grandmother. One of them is real, which is where the message did not come from, and another one is real. I think I just <laughs> misspoke there, but there's a fake one and a real one, and the message had come from the fake one. Yet it had come probably around the exact time that she had died. And according to like the autopsy, she had like a sudden cardiac arrest and she had just fell on the spot and died in her garden. It was like very abrupt. So there was, there's no doubt in my mind that this was a fake profile because this person on this fake profile had sent me several messages over the past few months, not many, but they all seemed very robotic and fake and like totally the opposite of my grandmother, who's extraordinarily lively and very, um, 
has a lot of character and color to her. And I was like, wow, what is that? What are the odds of that? That like <laughs> a fake uh, profile of my grandmother messages me right around the moment she probably fell to the ground and died saying, have you heard the big news? Strange synchronicities of things, interwovenness of things. And just reflecting about, I was just saying like things going to dust and changing and no matter what wealth or beauty or love or happiness we accumulate, things change and they fade and they pass. And so this becomes our deep meditation like what really matters but also not just what matters but what's happening right because when i experience things like this this leads me into a place of just feeling like there's too many what are the chances of that happening it's as if the whole thing has been orchestrated by somebody (laughs) and then i had another one synchronicity that occurred when i was in guatemala in 2016 and i'm kind of going off on a tangent here but i went down to go play didgeridoo for uh, a merkaba set macalia scintilla uh lake atitlan and i'd been to guatemala once before in 2012 and when i was there i met a guy at a uh Guatemalan hostel, Guatemalan dude in Guatemala City, friendly guy, with a group of people, went around, took us out to some places for food and, like, city walk, talked to him for probably totally of, like, 20 minutes, but I was in the group with him for, like, two hours, and then right before I went down the second time to Guatemala, I saw that it was his birthday, and I was like, oh, you know, it's cool, but at the same time, I was, like, really focused on getting to Lake Atitlan, I didn't want to get involved in staying at the same place i did last time where i met this guy who was like a host of the hostel and took people around to places i was like i just want to get to guatemala city fall asleep wake up immediately leave i'm not trying to like you know hang out with with a a guy not that they're any against him or anything but all he had spent maybe 20 minutes talking two hours of our time together some guy randomly friended me on facebook and then uh I get to so I stayed at, intentionally stayed at a different hostel, so I wouldn't run into him. <laughs> and then I I got there and I woke up. I swear to God, the first person I see when I walk in is him, and he goes, "Dude, how are you not going to call me?" <laughs> I Im- immediately recognized me. <laughs> I was like, "What are the odds of this happening? What are the odds of this happening? Like, how could this be?" And for that one in particular, I don't really grasp the total significance of it, but nonetheless, it's just one of those strange ones. And then another one that is perhaps a little bit more, has a little more meaning to it that I just want to share one more of these because this one in particular is funny to me. Ishelle, my wife and I were going on, was pretty much our first date. We were in the West Village getting pizza on Bleecker Street at John's second pizza place in America. I'd grown up as a kid going there. And we were sitting in a booth, and I went down to go to the bathroom. And at the time, I was teaching beatboxing to kids up in the Bronx with people from the beatbox house, specifically Mark Martin, Kayla Milady, and uh, Amit Bomwick. And they're like world champion beatboxers, and they have another dude in their group called Chris Elise, named Chris Elise. And I was walking by, and I was like, oh, I think that's Chris Elise. 
I've never met him before, although I have been teaching and learning from his uh, band and roommates. And then I went, got out of the bathroom. I took a double check, and I was like, oh, no, it's not him. This is some, some guy at the table. And then I, about 10 seconds later, I sit down, and we're sitting in a booth where there's a window. And I swear to God, God is my witness. <laughs> the actual Chris Elise walked by the street outside right past the window. And I was like, <laughs> it's like what is that and then to make things even more strange chris who was not working with the organization that i was involved with and um in hip-hop teaching hip-hop to kids back then got involved with it and then you know i dropped out of it for several years because i was traveling around the world doing music and and healing work and so on and then i picked up doing online classes for kids uh this past year just has some opportunity to connect back into it and then who do i mind teaching with none other than chris elise so very funny and strange things that happen and why am i talking about all this because the vision quest in a lot of ways is i i think is an attempt to uh unwind some of these synchronicities and understand like what is it that life is trying to communicate to us what is it that life wants us to bring forth and our perception of these synchronicities, although not necessarily always like that, but just the interwovenness of things becomes a really deep focus for us to understand what's happening. And yeah, there's moments such as those three where things spontaneously occur in everyday life and break the pattern form of the matrix to reveal that there's something deeper happening. But we also can create the circumstances to draw out that interconnectivity and that mystery and the you know the vision quest and the meditation serves as that function is for us to understand what's happening and during my uh, my time i had a dream on the first night where i went to burning man but it was at the potala palace in lhasa in tibet outside of it <laughs> so i've been reflecting about this this idea of kind of like you know you have piety and purity of the Tibetan tradition and you have kind of like Dionysus and sort of like renegade anarchist um like revolutionary crazy artists Hayoka type um trickster spirit of Burning Man and the synthesis of these two things together and how that can um how if we go one way or the other too far <laughs> we may lose a balance about who we are and by say who we are i'm referring specifically to myself and what's interesting is is that the i mean obviously if you go to burning man you go too far in that direction there's plenty of examples of, of things and traits and qualities and behaviors that you know, might not at the end of the day really be like the best thing for you. You know, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's all kinds of things there. And obviously what works for one is not what works for another. So we do need to be accommodating that we are individuals. So, you know, no judgments, right? But there are some self-destructive things there that are definitely not to be celebrated on the contrary, in like in the Tibetan tradition, 
if things go too far in one way, if things become too pious and conservative and uptight and religious, then all of a sudden we have figures who emerge like Drukpa Kunle, who after this dream, the story of this person, Drukpa Kunle, was deeply in my mind. <laughs> uh, so Drukpa Kunle is from Bhutan, as far as I know. I spent three weeks in Bhutan, traveling around there as a student. And when I was there, you might notice that there are giant phalluses <laughs> painted on all the buildings, almost. Not all of them, but on quite a few of them. You know, a bunch of ejaculating phalluses. <laughs> it's t it, it's, it makes you double-take, because if, if you don't know anything about Bhutan, Bhutan is an extremely conservative place. They have a dress code, for God's sake. It's called a go for men. I don't, don't recall what the women's one. I personally own a go, although I think Ishel might have thrown it away. But I did own a go at some point. It's like this. It's kind of like a robe, bathrobe. But they have a dress code. Um, they have certain really strict rules with alcohol and tobacco. They have a monarchy and a king, and everything that goes through there is highly, highly filtered. I was in a student group that was very fortunate for things to be opened up to. They only allow people to go there if you spend two hundred dollars a day. We were a student group that they wanted to start creating a relationship between the program that I was on from the united states and students of theirs to come to the united states so they were very they created a special situation for us to come and visit for uh, a very reduced price and it's funny when you go there like we went to with the universities and spent time with the um <laughs> with the students there and we were at the monastery or no i'm sorry not the monastery we were at the university and you go to every every room that i went to every dorm room for all the all the guys you would see like these almost like athlete pop star type posters but they don't they wouldn't be athletes or pop stars they would just be pictures of the king and the monarchy <laughs> and, you know like every, every like everyone's just really into the king there <laughs> like it's the king our king and like you know like you have like trading cards of the king <laughs> i don't know if they actually had trading cards but the posters have this kind of imagery of like this is like the king trading card and everyone's like oh we love our king you know they all and like that was a huge thing there so in the monarchy there they they keep a really conservative tight wrap on the country because of the you know like the environmental and cultural you could say destructions you know plagued like Kathmandu since it opened up to the west and you know the environmental like catastrophe that india is in and china as well and Bhutan is nestled the size of West Virginia between, you know, two empires, India and China, and they're trying to preserve themselves in their little tiny kingdom in the middle of the Himalayas. And it's very clean there, like 80% of it is forest, and they have a policy of gross national happiness where they say they're measuring the happiness of their citizens, not their wealth. That's what their main policy is. I actually had the opportunity to go meet the guy who created that policy and invited us all to his house. And Interesting time. And also, uh, yeah, they have phalluses. They have like giant dildos that they hang over the top of their um, doorways all across the um, the country, and they only have one um, uh, traffic light in the whole country. <laughs> and so, just okay. So, like some context. What what the hell am I talking about? Uh, so, Drukpa Kunli was called like the the divine madman, 
and he's like a 14th century Tibetan mystic and saint, and he was notorious for getting wasted on alcohol and sleeping with married and unmarried women far and wide, and slaying demons with his thunderbolt of wisdom, which is another word for shlong. <laughs> There's one story that I, I, I actually haven't read in a, in a passageway, but I was talking to a friend of mine many years ago about Krupa Kunli, and he's like, oh, Drupa Kunli, yeah, yeah. It's like this, I, he's like the guy that would go into the Tibetan monastery and he would just urinate all over the Tonka paintings. And all the monks would go, oh my God. And then he'd go, oh, look again. And they would see, and the urine had turned to gold and they're like these immaculate like creations all of a sudden. And then they're all like, oh, Drupa Kunli, okay. <laughs> so the guy was just like totally on a certain level insane, I think is kind of the way. And they just love him in Bhutan. Like they love him. They're, they're like, they're all about him. Like, <laughs> we went to the temple of Drukpa Kunli, uh, like, just in the middle of nowhere in the Himalayas. And when I say Himalayas, I don't mean, we're not up in, like, the snow-capped mountains. When you fly into Bhutan, you know, we flew by Mount Everest and all these things. And it was spectacular. I mean, you're really, you're like, you're, you're like a little kingdom encompassed in the Himalayas. Uh, so it's mountainous, but it, it's very beautiful. It's an amazing place. Like the marijuana grows all over there. And it's just like, it's pretty amazing waterfalls. And you can see the snow-capped peaks and beautiful rivers and all these Tibetan iconography and stuff. It's spectacular. It's really a special place, deeply. They call it the Shangri-La. It has that kind of vibe to it because of, it's been you know, protected by the mountains. But we went to Drupak Kunli's uh, monastery, you know, in the middle of nowhere, like just nowhere. <laughs> it's a very small town. And, you know, never have I seen so many ejaculating phalluses drawn on buildings before anywhere. <laughs> and when you walk into the monastery, you know, really quiet monastery, super like epic vibe of the monastery. It's really like you're going to a very old temple in Bhutan it's very powerful but then when you get up to the main shrine it was fascinating how there was two things up there one of them was was a a real AK-47 and the other one was just a giant dildo <laughs> and like the, and then the, the abbot was telling us that you know women will come here and the monks will bless them with the giant dildo and they'll like you know over their shoulders and the head and they'll pray to it and they'll, they'll tap them with it as a fertility blessing <laughs> which I mean maybe in traditional culture that's really not that crazy or anything like that. I, I don't necessarily have enough anthropo anthropological knowledge about that. But what I love about Drew Pakuni is like the guy was just so outrageous. Like truly, truly did not give a shit what anyone thought about him. And simultaneously had reached a level within his own practice and discipline and consciousness that would basically take all the con modern conventions and conservatism and policies and what you should and should not do and flip all of it upside down and just reveal to people the <laughs> i don't know what to describe the playfulness the bizarreness the insanity of life and the illusions the delusions that we construct about what's right and what's wrong and how one should and should not be and how we push deep down inside all these like repressed urges and things like that and in actuality life is a very tricky mysterious playful yet doesn't really 
give two shits about anything that anyone has to say type of energy that <laughs> comes into our life. And I love Drew Parkland because it's like this, he's represents like this liberating figure. He's kind of like the Tyler Durden of spirituality from Fight Club, something like that. And the fact that it comes out of this very like conservative culture in this very traditional culture is a way to balance things. That's how I perceive it. And I thought I, I appreciated perhaps the metaphor or I don't know if metaphor is the right word, but like the context of how the figure of this person kept coming to me, not like in a visionary sense, but just like within a reflective sense uh, during the equinox time of balance and just how a lot of what people think spirituality is, is a bunch of garbage, in my opinion. And in in transparency, I'm actually repulsed by a, a number of things that people perceive to be spiritual. Predominantly within like what New Age culture says spirituality is. Because it's oftentimes a large system of denial and repression and like really fluffy like like get that away from me i don't want that i don't want that it's just fluffy it makes me want to puke and it's just full of shit and i don't care about it get away and like just even to express something like that you might say well jerry is that something that dear little kinsay rinpoche would say and i say to myself i don't know but I do know there is a concept, like, is that really compassionate? But, like, coming back to idiot compassion of just absorbing whatever it is that the outside world wants to place upon you and say, oh, this is what spirituality is. Uh, or this is what compassion is. Uh. But this is what we're talking about here of, like, the vision quest of, like, you're saying, like, there's something wrong with the world, right? There's something off. And having enough awareness or guidance to say it's probably something very deep within myself that is being projected out into the universe and there's something that i need to uproot and cut within myself and confront and that's not a fluffy process and that's not a pretty process and it's not a uh kumbaya process it's not about like incense and pretty songs it's about like this very difficult painful frightening confrontation with yourself and everything that you've held on to and that's what Drupakuni on a certain level is doing it's it's a it's it's confronting you the person's confronting you with all the aspects of yourself that you say like oh that, that's, that's not sacred you know <laughs> but at the same time saying like you're missing the larger p picture here, which is like that God and universe is all encompassing and that like a participation in things can actually be a transformative path. And when I was spending time in Nepal, we studied about this thing, not very deeply, but talked about it at least called the left hand path, which is essentially this, the path of like a Hayoka, someone that goes backwards like Trupakunli and they do all the things you shouldn't do. They, they'll eat and drink their own urine and feces. They'll sleep in graveyards. Uh, they'll do the most disturbing and 
you know you can read about it, it, it books about sadhus they kind of talk a little bit more about it, the, the extremity of practices that people go into and like what it is that they're attempting to you know unlock through that i don't personally think that i rather i do think that there's kind of a limit to how far one should take that but for instance my friend john who was living in uh on my program in nepal who i went to bhutan with he was living he had a uh, homestay family and his brother homestay brother was a yogi <laughs> and he was sharing with john about how he as a practice would would you know drink his own urine and i think he said he ate his own feces a couple of times totally disgusting right like who wants to think about that but that was a spiritual practice to eradicate these like i don't like this i like that kind of thing this is good this is bad and obviously like you know all of us have to utilize that binary on some level in order to function in the world and to use discernment so that certain thing you know eating your own shit is obviously not good for you <laughs> but the point we're getting at here is just about i think that new age culture has stripped a lot of ancient spirituality from like its raw and ruthfulness mercilessness almost and kept a lot of the just and whitewashed it watered it down put a bunch of cotton candy processed sugar crap all over it and what i because when you look at a lot of these traditions like you know we i'd spent time and met i met a uh, llama there was talking about this process of uh you know these retreats that go on three years three months three weeks three days where they sit in a box that's like a couple feet high and they can't get out of the box and they have to eat this like gruel that's what you call it like that's it and you sit there and you meditate like that's that's well that's on a certain level frightening to think about i would at the same time tremendously like wow the power of that like the, what what kind of state is that person in you know what have they actualized within themselves what kind of level of depth have they really gone to just from myself the longest i've sat in the forest for 10 days on my own and afterwards i was like what's the point of going back <laughs> you know like there's just a moment where you're like you're in such a depth at that moment that you're not really sure why you would go back at the same time to all of our relations that's why we go back participate participation in the sorrows of the world and so on and then understanding, okay, how can we bring that like you know, recognition of whatever it is that we experience there out into the world? And so I'm talking about this with Drew Pakunli because I think that it's important that we challenge social norms. And although perhaps a lot of people listening to this don't know me personally, but I've always felt like that when I'm dead, I want to, I would like to have looked back in my life and felt like I left a big fiery vapor trail hole <laughs> the size of a comet through the center of the earth where I would have chosen to walk with a fierceness and a conviction in my life to transform as much around me as possible and affect positively as many people as possible possible and also as i was saying the 
to me, what brought me to like the path and not like one specific tradition, but like the path that all these traditions speak to and point to within myself is like I said, it was not like pretty songs and incense and like fluffy statements. It was like a deep, deep anger towards the way that people are treated and the societal institutions and structures and laws that have justified and condoned abuses and violence and ignorance and so on and so forth environmental degradation racism sexism homophobia all these things and this feeling of of tremendous anger at those things and coming back to you know how anger can be a very positive emotion says the dalai lama because it can be transformed into a practice of compassion and what has given me a lot of conviction to walk a strong path of service which includes having a son or a child i didn't choose that is this anger you know of like why is it like this you know why why are why are some people just taking all of the money and then polluting everything and then bombing people for resources that aren't needed when you already have enough you know this the toxicity of the world that we live in like that's very upsetting to me and i was meditating how you know i would love to (laughs) have my child be like a hell-bent revolutionary compassionately speaking of agent of transformation of the world and I was like, at the same time, though, you know, like that's that's imposing like a desire and a belief system onto something outside myself. The person has to be their own person. I don't have control over them. They're not mine, although they on some level they came through me. This is something that my teacher, my Sherman Well, often says. So having this perspective of detachment and compassion, too, for the circumstances, because recognizing that, you know, there is suffering in life and it's inevitable at some moment and the child needs to go through that. And having this process of detachment, of recognition, they are their own person. And as I was sitting one morning when the sun was coming up, I was watching, you know, I've been sitting there for a long time, sitting there quietly fasting. And as I was talking about uh, in the beginning of the podcast with autophagy, where as you fast, you are uh, cleaning your system, neurologically speaking, the mental plaque and the degenerative um, structures and not uh, what would you say um, <laughs> dull connections <laughs> that are forming in the brain are suddenly being zapped and cleaned and utilizes energy because you're not filling yourself up with food and uh, creating a state of neurogenesis where you're creating new brain connections new neurons you're literally regrowing your brain your cells and obviously, spiritually speaking, you know, this is why spiritual traditions fast, because you're literally like in a state of consciousness expansion. It's not it's not just you're growing brain cells and you can now do better at Scrabble. It's all of a sudden your consciousness is expanding. Your your memories that have been suppressed have been are opening. Your feelings that have been blocked have been opening and are sort of flowing now. And as I've been sitting here in this, you know, in this state for a long time, going through all kinds of shit and like, okay, really processing it. But at the same time, important to note, the practice begins with peace and it ends with peace, my teacher says. So the whole time we're in a practice of peace, 
Right. Even though there's tremendous difficulty at some moments, like, whoa, this is very hard. Um, maybe you feel hunger pang, maybe not. Maybe just sitting there, you start to feel very weak, something along those lines. And the uh, sitting there as the sun was rising after being in like 12 hours of darkness, because it's 12 hours of dark, 12 hours of light, of the equinox. And, you know, watching as the forest comes to life, you know, it had been very cold at night. I had, you know, some clothes and a, a sleeping bag I was wrapped up in, but it was very cold. And watching, you know, the sun start to come up just like really, really, really slowly. Like, ah. And I'm in this, like, feeling this sense of cohesion within nature, within myself. And I'm watching as the sun comes up, feeling the warmth come over me, which in and of itself has a very healing effect, right? Because, I mean, after spending 12 hours in silence, not silence, I'm sorry, in darkness, <laughs> spending a couple of days in silence, uh, in cold, there's this sense of contraction and uh, resistance and discomfort that's very, very intense. And then with the warmth of the sun suddenly it's like this energetic heat bath that comes over your being and because you've been fasting and cleansing it's so deep that you can feel it like <laughs> at the cellular level within yourself and the sense of division between you and the natural world and out the quote-unquote the outside world if there is a veil <laughs> if there even is a veil it, it's very thin and the light coming through the sun through your into your being has an uplifting radiant quality to it and at the same time like the birds all start to sing and they start like zipping around and you know there's a chipmunk or something a squirrel comes by you know some bugs start to fly around and you just you start to i was recognizing how you know i was like what do i need to do for my son you know and I'm just watching the all the I'm watching these birds fly like in a perfect zigzag um, harmony with each other. Like one turns left, they all turn left. You know, it's perfect, and they go right, and they go right. It's it the totally synergized and connected. And you're just like, oh, imagine those aren't birds, but they're children. Like the kids just go with the kids. The birds go with the birds. A family of deer walked by. The deer just go together. They all there's this, there's a certain know-how within nature. There's not a when we're natural within ourselves, when we're following our natural impulses. Impulses might not be the best word, but our natural flow, especially in harmony and connection with others and the ecosystem around us, then there's not really too much confusion. The birds go where the birds go. The bugs go where the bugs go. The deer go where the deer go. <laughs> Komodo dragons go where the Komodo dragons go and the llamas go where the llamas go. It's cool. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like this confusion arises within us because we become so fragmented from this unified, natural, ecosphere, consciousness, energy, which we can judge and be angry about. We also can say, you know, that's part of the human story towards moving into greater awakening and liberation and that these things were essentially like the manure that is placed on a seed in order for it to break through into something else 
and to understand the importance of like the visionary state is oftentimes a very simple thing it's like it's not like a psychedelic experience like i had a vision and like you know it's like explosions and <laughs> tracers or something i don't know whatever you want to, synesthesia or something it's not like that oftentimes the uh visionary state can be something very ordinary and simple just from being in a state of clean openness within your nervous system being able to perceive you know the harmony of the forest and how human beings can function within that and how structures around us have blocked it just at that moment like that was visionary state and the importance of that in recognizing how will that influence how we act from here on out and i reflect on a lot of difficulties and painful things that you know i've experienced in life and my thought process is like you know approach fatherhood with a lot of character and self-control and equanimity and peace and compassion detachment and wisdom sharing generosity creativity you know just walking in those values and the thing is going to unfold on its own just have more trust have more trust about what's happening because there's a natural flow to nature that all beings are in a participation towards and only very confused fragmented human beings that are caught in the the trappings of their own makings are unable to tap into that but the beauty of living in a community such as i as i do is that we have so many resources such as you know the presence of nature farming ritual meditation uh, living together closely deeply those things are what connect us back to this unified field where things flow and we don't feel confined or compacted or compartmentalized or blocked and we can step just into this this the natural lightness of our being the natural flow and lightness of our being <laughs> and remembering too that there is a balance that this is all about a balance right between not being too like as we walk a spiritual path whether it's as a father or as a with our own individual process not being too rigid too dogmatic too religious but also you know <laughs> not going too far into the other extreme as well self-destruction and so on and so forth and learning to open up to like the crazy wisdom of life that drew pop kunli personified and this idea that we don't know what's happening the rules are all made up and the only people that are remembered not that we, like our fame or notoriety is of any importance to us whatsoever i mean who cares at the end of the day we, we've all been each other parents and lovers and one another for so on and so forth to infinity and beyond through this process of eternal incarnation but understanding that a life that impacts others deeply in a positive direction 
the people who do that the most are never remembered as people that just sat around and played by the rules and followed orders. The only people who are remembered for doing things like that are oftentimes the ones who did really terrible things in history. <laughs> you know, prison guards and the police structures, people who follow the orders of those in charge. And it's important that we challenge structures and power and authority and that we question things and that we shake up structures and that every now and then, metaphorically speaking, we light a Molotov cocktail and we burn something down because life is far beyond the constraints and rigidity of any tradition, of any teacher, of any religion, of any ethnicity, of any nationality, of any culture. Life is something that cannot be contained. It's entirely outside of our control. And there is, though, I feel from the, what these teachings of Drew Pakunli is trying to prevent, provide to us is that there is a power that we can tap into when we align ourselves with this chaos for the benefit of others. And that's a main thing that you read in the poetry of Drew Pakunli is like, this is for the benefit and compassion of all beings. It's just done. The method is just totally ludicrous. But there is, there's a, there's a method to the madness, right? As we say, there's something when we align ourselves with that, the creative thunderbolt, lightning, chaos energy of the universe, then things really do start to happen. And I've seen this happen in my own life at times when I've really, you know, just jumped and trust that a net would appear. You know, when we play it safe and we're caught in our neuroses, then we become <laughs> just completely lost and forgetting the magic mystery and the power and the beauty and the the uh, incomprehensibility, if that's even a word, <laughs> of what what it is that we are and that we're caught in. And just to be in a place of complete awe at every moment as much as possible, I don't think much more is required of us than that. So this was something that I also was reflecting on within the context of like this podcast as a, as a really, as I've gone through these different experiences and you know, rites of passage and initiations and so on and so forth, many things are better left unsaid, but other things are really only activated when they're spoken about and they're only even more activated when they're shared because it's about us it's about all of us it's not about me and my vision and my experience and my insight it's about how is it's about also someone else's listening to that and then how they take those words and then they act upon them themselves so it's about the relationships. It's about how we're influencing one another and we're using our experiences to create harmony and equilibrium and egalitarianism and support one another and empower one another and to for each one of us to change the things that we can and to bring that forth into a world that in many ways has become a wasteland at least in terms of like the general social structures, not in terms of the human spirit, but the general social structures, complete wasteland where you have people like Donald Trump is the 
political figure, most revered, and we need to awaken each other and and stir it up and rock the boat and bite the hand that feeds and understand that there's something happening. There is something happening on earth right now and it's very powerful and it's very potent if we can step into it. And there's a lot to be enthusiastic about at the same time with the process of like equanimous detachment, but also a lot to be like, wow, something really powerful is happening and I can participate in it and, and bring energy to it and service being service towards it so thank you for listening i could keep going on and on about this but i feel like this is a good place to stop here because there's a lot to digest and if you know my message is like never give up to the forces that want to keep us bound to mental physical emotional social slavery we need to overcome these things within ourselves and free ourselves confront ourselves and become in a certain level you could say radicalized but when i say radicalized i don't mean radical in the sense of like violent or anything like that i mean radical like to live like the most full expression of ourselves but then also to keep a balance right to not go too far into dionysian and self-destruction nor conservative dogmatic religious to think of others act with compassion and to see the cohesive synchronistic unity of all creation at each moment so thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed the vision and find your own expression of it house house